In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Apostle says today, I hand down to you what I also received. Today I'm reminded of something I heard from the pulpit long ago from a priest who apologized at the beginning, saying, I do ask you to forgive the length of my sermon. I didn't have time to prepare a short one. Today's sermon is a a bit longer than I usually preach, but there are several points I wish to make, several things we could go on to discuss at greater length. But there are several things I would like to get across today at least. This 11th Sunday after Pentecost always falls around the beginning of August. This month, which we begin with the Feast of St. Peter in chains, a month after we celebrated his more solemn feast on June 29th, the Feast of the Holy Founders of the Roman Church, Peter and Paul. And it is at the same time during the liturgical year that the Church has her clergy and her religious read in the night office from the books of Kings in the Old Testament. Those who ruled over the people of God and prefigured the spiritual kings of the New Testament. On this feast of St. Peter in Chains, And throughout these summer months, we can call to mind what is truly the parting words of St. Peter, which he wishes, no doubt, to be read by all of his successors, inspired words that come from the fifth chapter of his first epistle. The ancients, therefore, that are among you, I beseech, who am myself also an ancient and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as also a partaker of that glory which is to be revealed in time to come. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking care of it, not by constraint, but willingly, according to God, not for filthy lucre's sake, but voluntarily. Neither is lording it over the clergy, but being made a pattern of the flock from the heart. And when the prince of pastors shall appear, you shall receive a never-fading crown of glory. Who is the Pope. This question is not meant to be as controversial as you might suppose at first hearing. It is worth remembering, though, that if we were actually asking about the identity of the Pope, throughout much of the history of the Church, many Catholics would be unable to answer at any given time. Before radio, television, and the Internet, many Christians went through most of their lives not knowing for sure who was the Pope at that particular time. People were not able to hover, dwell on every word that came forth from the mouth of the Pope. They simply never heard about it. Indeed, often by the time peasants heard about who the Pope was, he might have already been dead and another one might have been elected. No, when I ask who is the Pope, I'm asking you simply to recall, first of all, what you know from your catechism. 
The Pope is the successor of St. Peter. He is the Bishop of Rome, the Vicar of Christ on Earth, and the visible head of the Church. But since we live in a very tempestuous post-Christian era where we do have access to all of the Pope's pronouncements and can be informed on a daily, even an hourly basis, of all of the Pope's actions, I think it is important to dispel you of certain misconceptions about the papacy, which I find to be very common among Catholics. This is very important to make clear because if we do not understand precisely the nature of the papacy, it can lead to grave misconceptions and even doubts about our faith altogether. The first misconception which I wish to dispel is that the Pope is chosen by the Holy Ghost such that the cardinals who meet in conclave to elect him can only elect the worthiest man of that time for the office. Certainly nothing escapes God's will. With the election of a pope in particular, we cannot doubt that the good Lord showers many actual graces upon those men in conclave, that they may vote for a man who will be a true prophet, priest, and king for their time. But those men in conclave are sinners, like all of us. They can, and sometimes do, resist the grace of God. Of course, we can say that whoever is pope is pope by God's will. But God does not only bring about results in human affairs. He also permits them. He allows human freedom to play itself out with all the frightening consequences of this great gift of our Creator. Sometimes he permits evil so that a greater good will be brought about in the end. Thus of the papacy it has long been said, some popes God grants, others he permits, still others he inflicts. God may grant a good pope to a humble and repentant generation. To a lukewarm people, he may permit a pope who fails in many ways to do his duty. To a wicked and idolatrous age, he may permit the election of a truly wicked man as pope, who will bring all evil in the church to the surface, so that the spotless bride of Christ may be purged of it. What I have just said may give rise to an objection What are we to do if we're born into such a wicked generation? Without Christ and his grace, we can do nothing. Surely a wicked generation needs a good pope. Without a holy pope, such a generation is lost. If God punishes a wicked generation with a wicked pope, isn't he depriving them all of even the slightest chance of salvation? That brings us to the next misconception. God would never allow a pope to act so wickedly that he actually scandalizes the souls entrusted to him. And thus, if we should ever be so misfortunate as to live to see the day when a vicious, scandalous pope reigns over the church, our only choice would be to conclude either that he is not really the pope 
or that the Church of Christ has failed. Throughout our lives, we all suffer the consequences of other people's sins. And our spiritual shepherds are no exception. And if the sins of your local pastor or bishop cause scandal, how much more the sins of the universal shepherd? The Church teaches that, in narrowly defined circumstances, the Pope is infallible. She has never taught that he is sinless. Pick any moment in the last 2,000 years of the papacy, and we can always declare truthfully, although we better do so with humility, the Pope is a sinful man. For there is not one man who ever sat on the throne of Peter whose soul was not redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Read of the prefiguration of the Pope in the Old Testament books of Kings. You will never find any man who ruled over God's people who was described by the sacred author as free of all evil. And most of the time we read as a virtual refrain, and he was a bad king and did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He sinned and made Israel to sin. Scandal has always been present among God's ministers. It is something the faithful have always had to suffer. And it does not mean that we are fated to hell or that God is unjust. Even in this terrible sin, God allows no one to be tempted beyond his strength and gives each of us sufficient grace to work out our salvation. I wish then to pass to the third and most dire misconception which we find today among so many of the faithful. The Pope has absolute power over the Church. Well, the Church does teach that the Pope possesses something called plenitudo potestatis, the fullness of power. This power comprises the power to teach, the magisterium, and the power to govern, jurisdiction. The power to govern, in turn, comprises the power to legislate, that is, to promulgate or abolish laws, to execute those laws, and to judge infractions of the law. The current code of canon law describes the Pope's power thus. The bishop of the Roman Church, by virtue of his office, enjoys supreme, full, immediate, universal, and ordinary power in the Church, which he can always freely exercise. Well, isn't that the same as absolute, unlimited power? No. Listen patiently as I explain the difference. If that's the only lesson you retain from today's long sermon, my effort will be well spent. Fullness of power does not mean that the Pope can do whatever he wants. It means that anything that another authority figure can do in the Church on earth, priest, prelate, bishop, cardinal, religious superior, the Pope can do as well. Now, everyone can see right away that those figures I just named certainly do not have unlimited power. And if you add up all their powers together, it still doesn't come close to anything like absolute power. But whatever spiritual power there is in the Church, 
from that of the country pastor to the metropolitan archbishop, the Pope possesses it as much as any of those individuals. Let us examine briefly those adjectives which the Code of Canon Law, following tradition, applies to the office of the papacy. The Pope's power is supreme, full, immediate, universal, and ordinary. That his power is supreme means that the Pope has no superior on earth. The Pope can be judged by no other man, and his decisions can be appealed to no one. His power is full in that he governs the whole church, as we have just explained. His power is immediate in that he may exercise his authority over all of the baptized without any need of passing through lower persons holding authority, like pastors or bishops. His power is universal which means that his power is over all the baptized, not only in the spiritual realm, but even in the secular. That is why we should always be careful about the term separation of church and state. By all means, the spiritual and the temporal are two separate realms. When we are talking about baptized people, we cannot say that they are simply separate. A baptized person who holds political office does not cease to have any relation to the church simply because he holds office. No, the Pope still has power over him. And thus, in times past, the Pope has deposed Christian kings who fall into heresy. The Pope's power, finally, is ordinary. That means his power is exercised in virtue of his own office that is, without any form of delegation from any other human office. So who is this figure who holds such illustrious powers? He is the vicar of Christ on earth. And vicar means placeholder. He holds the place of him who came to earth not to rule with earthly glory and exalt himself, but to become obedient unto death. As the Apostle tells us in the Epistle to the Hebrews, whereas indeed he was the Son of God, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being consummated, he became to all that obey him the cause of eternal salvation, called by God a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ learned obedience This is how the sacred author speaks. This is how he speaks of our divine Savior who declared, all power in heaven and on earth is given to me. To become our king, he became not bigger, but smaller. He who knew all things from all eternity deigned to be taught as a frail man, to submit to authority, both earthly and heavenly, For he said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What then of his vicar? The Pope can truly declare, I have been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. But if Christ was obedient unto death, how much more is his lowly vicar bound to obedience? What title describes him better 
and servus servorum Dei, servant of the servants of God. Yes, the Pope is first, first in obedience. The faithful obey their local pastor, the priest obeys his bishop, the bishop obeys the prince of all bishops. And the Pope, he obeys no one, blasphemous folly. The Pope obeys Christ, and Christ and his church are one. Christ laid down his life for the church. Yes, we can say it, the Pope rules the church on earth by obeying the church on earth. He does not obey this or that man, and he can be judged by no other man. But he is our direct link with sacred tradition. All that Christ has handed down to us through his apostles, the inspired scriptures, the teachings of the fathers, the public prayer of the church, the sacred liturgy. To tradition, the Pope owes absolute obedience. Indeed, throughout much of the history of the papacy, the Pope began his reign by taking an oath to tradition, swearing to obey and hand down faithfully all that had been handed down to him, creed, council definitions, rites and ceremonies. This is the most dread obedience of all. All other men may hope to stand before their Savior on Judgment Day and hear from him, you strove to be obedient to the men I set over you in life, sinful and ignorant men though they were. As long as they did not compel you to deny me, you humbly endured their rule. Well done, good and faithful servant. We can only shudder to think what a pope may hear from the just judge. It was not your duty to obey men. A pope who obeys men is a pope who strives to please the world. Your duty was to obey me alone, to be the faithful keeper of all that I bequeathed to my spotless bride, to labor until your last breath, to ensure that not one jot, not one tittle should pass from tradition till all things be fulfilled. Sacred tradition cannot sin or err like human masters. You were to obey it absolutely, to reign only by serving, by handing down all that had been entrusted to you. Is this how you discharged your sacred office? Answer me. No, the Pope does not have absolute or unlimited power. He cannot excommunicate whomever he likes, regardless of guilt. He cannot dissolve the entire hierarchy and rule as the only bishop in the world. He cannot dispense people from the Sixth Commandment or create new commandments to stand beside the original ten that came from God. He cannot absolve people of sin before they commit it. He cannot decide that penance, an obligation of natural and divine law, is outdated and no longer to be practiced at all in any form in the Church. He cannot, he cannot add to or subtract from the seven sacraments, nor can he change the substance of how they are celebrated. He cannot order the Church to abandon the way it has prayed for centuries past. To put it simply, the Pope is not above the law. He is bound to natural law, to reveal divine law, and even to human church law, that is, to canon law. He cannot break the natural law and commit a murder, 
He cannot break the divine law and violate the Sabbath or blaspheme God's holy name. What about canon law? The Pope is the supreme legislator upon earth. He can lawfully alter the Church's code of laws. But until he does so, he is bound to them like every other baptized person on earth. What is more, he cannot alter the Church's laws in such a way that they violate natural or revealed law or go against sacred tradition. Consider even how the Pope prays. We all know that to obtain indulgences, we pray for the intentions of the Holy Father. But the Pope is bound to have certain intentions in virtue of his office. This is so true that we continue to pray for the intentions of the Holy Father even when we don't have one. You can still get indulgences even when there's no Pope on the throne when we're waiting for the election of a new one. Because the office of the papacy has intentions that can never be changed, the Pope must always pray for the furthering of the gospel, the triumph of the true faith against heresy, peace among Christian princes, and all things that pertain to the true mission of the Church. When I say, then, that the Pope cannot violate the law, I mean that he may not. I do not mean that he definitely will not. If the Pope were to act outside of the law, he would no longer be acting as vicar. He would be a tyrant. Does God promise us that he will never allow his vicar to act in such a way? I mentioned earlier the doctrine of papal infallibility. This was very narrowly defined by the First Vatican Council. It defined that when the Pope, invoking the fullness of his apostolic authority, defines a matter of faith or morals, he is preserved from all error. It is only under such circumstances that he is preserved from all error. And furthermore, this infallibility applies only to his teaching office, not to all that he does and how he acts. As I have already told you, the Church has never declared that the Pope, simply by becoming Pope, becomes sinless. He is capable of violating all the Ten Commandments, even the First. This is why the Church exhorts us to pray for popes. It is a required part of our holy liturgy handed down from the time of the apostles. Why would the Church demand that we pray for popes if not for the fact that they are so desperately in need of our prayers? Let us pray then for the Holy Father and for all the hierarchy, that they may heed the words that we hear from blessed Peter in that epistle, Be you humbled, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in the time of visitation, casting all your care upon him, for he hath care of you. Be sober and watch, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, goeth about seeking whom he may devour. Resist him strong in faith, 
knowing that the same affliction befalls your brethren who are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little, will himself perfect you, confirm you, and establish you. To him be glory and empire forever and ever. Amen.